0: Payers and providers coming together in the name of value today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. In today's episode, we're talking about a groundbreaking payer provider partnership in New Jersey. That conversation is coming up in a moment. But first, let's hear what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA senior editor, Nick Hutt, and HFMA policy director, Sean Stack.
1: Hello, everybody. Our topic for this segment is prior authorization, which it's no secret is something of a boondoggle for healthcare providers. We talked about this topic in the first half of last year after the Office of Inspector General at HHS issued a report, basically saying that in Medicare Advantage, health plans often would overreach and delay or deny coverage that should have been approved based on Medicare guidelines. Now, Sean, CMS has responded in a couple of different proposed rules, both of which were released in December, and one of them has implications across government health insurance programs. Can you tell everybody what the upshot of that rule is? Pretty excited about this
2: rule. CMS has stepped in and
1: they're kind of taking important steps to
2: remove, you know, those barriers to patient care by of streamlining that authorization process for um, certain health insurance plans so those impacted are the medicare advantage state medicaid fee for service medicaid managed care plans state chip plans fee for service and managed care and qualified health plan insurers on the on the exchange so this is kind of exciting we'll see where this goes but for the most part it really adds a layer of transparency on what health insurers and what coverage plans require prior authorization on for the patients and for the providers. It really promotes a more timely response from the payer on denials, which much greater detail. So the hospital so care is not delayed and the hospital can respond to assign appropriate care if if the, the avenue they took is not allowed. But it really is a huge win for the patient in not delaying their care and then it also has a ton of you know public reporting prior authorization metrics attached to the rule things like you know what's the plan's list of services that require prior authorization standard prior authorization requests that they approved that they denied that were approved after the patient or the payer appealed them so a lot of transparency on payer and health plans prior authorization kind of policies and procedures, if you will.
1: Yeah, great summary, thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to note, it's not until 2026, am I right that the core requirements kick in? That's correct, yes.
2: So there's a lot of build in this rule. Payers have to have or stand up and use the fast healthcare interoperability, resources, the FIRE approach. So there is quite a bit of, of build here to achieve these very timely prior authorization standards and transparency in those standards.
1: Yeah, so certainly an exciting development in, in the context of, of prior authorization. Another rule that was released around the same time was the proposed terms of participation for Medicare Advantage health plans for 2024. Kind of hard to believe there are already 2024 regulations being published. <laughs> right? At least proposed regulations, but uh, here we are. And this rule really gets to the heart of the OID report that I mentioned at the top, it basically prohibits health plans in Medicare Advantage from implementing coverage and benefit guidelines that contradict what you'll find in so called traditional Medicare, AKA Medicare fee for service. So all of the national and local coverage determinations would need to hold sway in Medicare Advantage unless plans want to go beyond those guidelines and be more expansive in the coverage they provide. And there are other relevant terms and conditions. For example, in scenarios when a beneficiary, for whatever reason, moves from one plan to another during a course of treatment, the approval of that treatment would carry over to their new plan for at least 90 days. So that can help avoid interruptions of coverage for a specific treatment or service. So, Sean, in the last episode, you know, when we talked about the No Surprises Act Independent Dispute Resolution process, we were justifiably, I think, critical of CMS, but here's arguably an instance where they're maybe on the ball and at least trying to be mindful of reducing the administrative burden on providers. And obviously, as you noted, that's all in the name of enhancing care access for beneficiaries.
2: I would agree, Nick. I mean, both of these rules do significantly, you know, with the, the more transparency with the BIOROS and the new Medicare Advantage rule, they definitely um, help reduce administrative burden on the hospital staff and Really ramp up and and help support continuity of care, which is what you were hitting on there in your final role. So this is great, great news for providers and patients in following that healthcare plan for the patient.
1: For sure. So I think that'll do it for this segment. As with all the other hot topics we discuss on Beyond the News, we'll definitely be keeping tabs on this one and keeping everybody apprised on further developments. Thanks, and talk to you next time.
2: Great. Thanks, Nick.
0: If you search the term value-based payment on HFMA.org, you'll get nearly 5,000 results back, including news, how-tos, education, and more. Despite all that guidance from HFMA and other sources, fee-for-service contracts continue to dominate the industry. But for Braven Health, a payer-provider partnership in New Jersey, value arrangements are critical to the future of healthcare. My guests today are Patrick Young, President of Population Health for Hackensack Meridian Health, an integrated delivery system covering eight counties in New Jersey, and Jeff Smith, Chief Commercial Officer at Lumaris, a value-based care managed services operator. You'll hear Patrick speak first.
3: Brave and Health came to fruition probably about five years ago that we thought there was a better way at Hackensack Meridian Health to take care of our patients. And we thought that if we could combine what we do as a provider and what an insurance company does and combine those organizations and align the goals formally that we could improve the quality of care that individuals receive as Medicare recipients. We chose Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield as our strategic partner to really combine what we call now a, a pay provider where a provider and an insurance plan work together to improve the quality care and life of members that we serve braven started out in the eight counties but we really expanded this year into the entire state of new jersey so it's really transcending just where we operate our business and a part of the process is we brought in robert wood johnson who in the eight counties that we operate in is our biggest competitor But we really thought that if we're going to really have great access and really make a difference, we need to expand our partnership to not just with Horizon, but to bring Robert Wood Johnson in as a competitor, but actually as a partner to optimize, you know, the scope of the members that could be impacted and really to align our goals, their goals, and Horizon goals for improving the quality of life of our Medicare members.
0: Let's talk a little bit about patient and physician needs when it comes to an arrangement like this and the role that physicians particularly play in an effort like this?
3: So we wanted to make sure that we had the broadest network available. And so we access Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield's network of participating physicians. And, you know, primary care physicians play a critical role in relation to the care that patients receive. You know, really think of them as kind of like the quarterback of care for patients. They do coordination, education, ensuring they get access, uh, work on preventative services. So primary care physicians and physicians in general are critical for our success. We also have set up a physician advisory council for BRAVEN. So we want to make sure that the communication between BRAVEN and its participating doctors is a pretty open and fluid process the physicians provide feedback and express their concerns about the products that we have or concerns about anything we have to do from an operational standpoint or, or how you know feedback they're getting from the patient so you know physicians really are are a critical partner in, and i believe are driving the success of braven in the marketplace yeah and e- erica if i could
4: jump in i just want to state that i think the focus on physicians has been the differentiator for Hackensack in their uh, local market, and it's something we've seen indicative across the country. Having physicians engaging members at the point of care is a a, a point of differentiation that leads to much higher physician and patient satisfaction. And truthfully, when you have a collaborative payer like Raven, working with the physician network in the way that they are, magic happens. And I think we're seeing that emerge in New Jersey with Back and sex leadership in their in their efforts at Braven.
0: What we're talking about here is a partnership between two entities that typically are not friends. Right. The relationships between providers and payers are famously contentious. So what is the secret to Braven's success here?
3: The secret, I believe, is, is that in a traditional relationship between an insurance plan and a provider, You know, providers want to receive more revenue for the services they provide and insurance companies want to pay less revenue so they can have lower premiums for the members who choose their program. In this structure with Braven, we fundamentally have aligned everyone's goals about making Braven the most successful plan it can be. So we share data, uh, we have meetings regularly the chief medical officer for my division interfaces with the medical director at Braven. So it's an ongoing collaborative goals to improve the Braven experience for our, for our members and for the patients that we serve. And I think that by doing that, you align the goals. So there's not that inherent friction that there might be between a provider and a payer, because we are, partners in this endeavor. And it's important that, you know, we we remember that the member is the most important aspect of what's taking place, the patient that we provide care for, the member at Braven. And, and that's why I think it works.
4: And to amplify just two or three points there, if I could, the, the access to the data, as Patrick talked about, bringing the physicians to the table around the benefit design and how they're designing the Uh, engagement. And you think about claims denials or what can really be a point of abrasion between a health system and a payer. Having the system and the payer together helps to set a much better collaborative uh, engagement. And think about also alignment of these programs and initiatives You don't have payers outreaching to members that are then separately being outreached by the patients. There's just a greater coordination of care and leads to just a higher level of patient satisfaction with the care they're receiving through a BRAVEN program.
0: So this definitely sounds like a win all around. Are there any lessons learned that you'd like to share?
3: One of the reasons why BRAVEN's been successful is that we structured it to be successful. This is not about us bringing business to HMH, it's about providing a viable insurance product that provides great access. So it's not about driving volume to HMH facilities, it's about great access for the patients, it's about a collaborative effort Braven it has its own license. It has its own CEO. It has its own CFO. It is a separate organization from both HMH, Robert Wood Johnson, and Horizon. So we really have that dedicated focus in order for it to be successful. And I think that if you have some underlying structure in place and governance that really ensures that the focus is about making Braven the best it can be, that goes a long way to having, you know, better outcomes. I would say that one of the things that anyone thinking about doing this is, you know, if you're on the provider side of the house, you're now moving into the insurance business and it's a pretty significant endeavor to do. So you need to make sure that the management team, the board of directors understands that you're getting into a, a business that's somewhat close to what you do, but taking on risk, providing risk-based capital, the investment that is needed is significant and it's a different creature than providing care to patients. So that would be my uh, insights or, or, or watchouts.
4: If I could, Eric, also taking a, a national view on this, one of the themes we're hearing consistently now is coming out of COVID. The direction that Hackensack has gone towards value-based care post-pandemic, and, and Patrick even used the term being a pay-biter, is the trend that we're seeing emerge. And it very specifically is doing two things it, when you start to move towards value-based care. First is, in this example, it's perfect. Patrick is establishing a relationship between uh, a payer and a health system that's turning likely unprofitable or lower profit Medicare business into something that's more profitable on the Medicare Advantage side. And two, because of all the collaboration they're doing around the data and the insights around the, uh, the patients, they actually are providing better care continuity for these patients. So you're you're starting to, as you move towards value-based care, do this incredible job of driving uh, collaboration between PCPs and specialists, care coordination is occurring in a better way, and likely is also helping in other populations, such as commercial business, where it's more profitable for the system. So value-based care opens up a whole new business profitable line on the Medicare side and starts to drive care continuity towards the more profitable commercial lines of business and better care overall for the patient. So it's uh, it's really exciting to see what's emerging.
0: We've been talking about value-based care for a very long time at HFMA and a lot of our member organizations, our provider members, some have embraced it. Others are still, even now, nervous about it, scared of it. What do you say to them?
3: The idea of making sure that you socialize the approach and the structure of what you're doing internally within the organization with the board is critically important. You know, I talk to a lot of other organizations where the CFO wants to have more heads in beds and the value-based structures to get people out of the hospital. So you have two fractions within the same organization that have different goals and objectives. So you need to make sure that as a provider, that as you move into value care, value based care, that you really have a vision that this is the direction that we're heading, this is the right thing to do for the patients. It will improve the quality of care. But also means that your underlying value based contracts, your data analytics all the things that you need to manage that, you have that structure in place in order for you to do those things. I think a lot of organizations don't have the data, don't have the infrastructure, don't have the culture to do these kind of things. And that's why a lot of them fail.
4: To amplify and add, Patrick started this journey a few years ago. It isn't something like he he said, hey, tomorrow, let's start taking downside risk. Let's move in this direction. So One of the things that I don't think any of us can underestimate is the time to build the muscles, shape the network, get the competencies in place. And then secondly, this value-based care allows you to actually change some of the, the profitability of government programs. It really opens up a whole new direction for health systems as they think about their pathway forward And, you know, the government has stated that they're going to have 100% of their uh, population in a value-based care arrangement by 2030. It's coming. So how do you think about your government business, your commercial business, and run the right strategies and tactics? And just start early enough so that you you can make the moves you need to as a system to be successful and you're not forced into it too early.
0: Let's talk about results. You said you're in the 25th month of this, although I know that there's been some expansion in that time as well. Can you share any results at this point?
3: Sure. So we are not profitable. We didn't expect to be profitable. It takes some time to get this kind of endeavor uh, moving in the right direction. I would say that we had a significant amount of headwinds with COVID it's really hard to improve the quality of care that individuals receive when nobody can go to see their primary care physician. And you can't really optimize the outreach and the preventative services and everything that you want to do to improve the quality of life for those patients. If, you know, for two years of your existence, a lot of people were apprehensive about going into seeing their primary care physician. So I think that that's led to some of our our risk scores uh, in relation to the population to be somewhat out of dated. Uh, so I think we're kind of coming out of that. Those headwinds are kind of diminishing and I do believe we're moving in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I think I think this is gonna be a good interview for many of our members to hear a success story like this. Even if it's not a profitable success story yet, I definitely look forward to hearing the results down the road and I invite you to come back and, and talk about that at a later date when it's time. Jeff Smith, Patrick Young, thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Thank you, Erica. Thank you.
0: Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Registration is open for our upcoming Revenue Cycle Conference in Phoenix. It's a great opportunity to connect with MAP Award winners and other organizations with insights into solving the most challenging revenue cycle issues. Sign up today at hfma.org.
1: We're getting good at this, Nick.